right, let's turn now to other news headlines around the nation. Has now been found guilty of killing 11 people at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh back in 2018. It took the jury less than one day to convict him on all counts. On Friday, a federal jury in Pittsburgh convicted a 50-year-old truck driver of carrying out the worst mass murder of Jews in American history. Five years ago, he burst into the Tree of Life synagogue building during Shabbat morning services on Saturday, October 27th, and mowed down 11 worshippers, wounding six more. The court heard the man turned the shul into a hunting ground before he was eventually shot and wounded by police. We aren't naming the shooter so as not to give him any platform for his anti-Semitic and anti-immigrant conspiracy theories. The jury convicted him of all 63 counts against him, including purposely trying to stop people from practicing their religion and hate crimes against Jews resulting in death. And watching the verdict unfold on Friday on TV from his Toronto office was Dr. Bob Libman. One of the 11 victims, 75-year-old Joyce Feinberg, was his older sister. Joyce was born and raised in Toronto. She attended Holy Blossom Temple. She was also married there. She and her husband eventually moved to Pittsburgh for his teaching career at Carnegie Mellon University, while Joyce also worked for 25 years as a researcher at the University of Pittsburgh until she retired in 2008. Her brother Bob is satisfied with the guilty verdict, but it doesn't make Joyce's loss any easier to bear nearly five years later. So a lot of it has to do with sort of reminding ourselves of those memories in between the the pain that uh, that we all have when uh, we think about what happened and try to push it out of our minds. I'm Ellen Besner, and this is what Jewish Canada sounds like for Monday, June the 19th, 2023. Welcome to the CJN Daily, a podcast of the Canadian Jewish News sponsored by Metropia. remember where we were when we heard about the breaking news of the Pittsburgh synagogue shooting. Dr. Libin was in shul in Thornhill, and because he's observant, he wasn't checking his phone, and neither was the rabbi, but rumors started swirling through the services anyway. His late sister was 75, a recent widow, the mother of two, and a grandmother of six, and she was active in her community. She always invited students who were not Jewish to her Passover seders. She was known for volunteering and being extremely kind. And Feinberg's family have since honored her memory in several ways. Her son and daughter-in-law, Howard and Marnie, have started a movement across the United States and Canada where people invite two strangers to come to their very first seders as a way of building bridges with the non-Jewish community. We interviewed her brother, Dr. Bob Libman, just after the verdict came down in this exclusive interview with the CJN. First of all, our condolences to you and your family for the loss of your sister years ago. You were monitoring it, but you weren't there today. You were, uh, you're in Toronto at work. Tell us what your day was like as you were monitoring and who of the family was there. Well, it's been a very trying day. The, um, just reliving the horrible moments of that time kind of brings it all kind of back in a very painful way. Um, my two nephews, uh, my sister Joyce's two sons, um, have been coming to the trial. My elder, the elder son, my elder nephew lives in Paris. He came in at the beginning for the opening statements a few weeks ago and stayed for a few days and he went back to Paris. And um, his uh, younger brother, who lives in the Washington, D.C. area, has been coming in uh, to Pittsburgh uh, really every day for the trial. And uh, 
I'm speaking to them often, and it's uh, it's pretty grueling. And uh, for us here in the Toronto area and Thornhill, it's um, just watching it on CNN and trying to grapple with it and uh, seeing her picture up there with the other victims. It's, it's been very difficult. Terrible, actually. <laughs> Did you add, I know you went to the funeral in 2018 because we, we read your comments and, and your, but I mean, is it, did, have you been back to the area since then? Yeah, we went back for the unveiling and um, uh, not too much anymore other than that. I think uh, we're, you know, um, my one of my daughters lived, lived in Pittsburgh. It was very close to her Aunt Joyce, but she moved to um, Cleveland, which isn't that far away. So we're really sort of connected. And she's gone to Pittsburgh a couple of times. She was a teacher there and in the Jewish system, Jewish day school system. And she um, has been called back a few times to speak to the students and we're connected that way. So you saw the verdict. I, I guess you were watching it. That was to be expected. I don't think that was even a much of an issue. It just has to be done that way for the justice system to be done the proper way. And that's the way we live in this society with justice a properly constructed justice system played by the rules for everybody, even even in this kind of horrible situation. So what's the next legal step? Could you let us know what, what's... I mean, there's a, they have to have the decision about what to do with him. Yeah, I guess the next, the next phase, which will go on for a while, will be the decision the prosecution is asking for the death penalty. And um, uh, they're going to have to um, decide on that very issue, and the prosecution has some um, ideas that they're going to try to um, bring forward, but I think the, Im- the victim, or survivor, rather, victim impact statements uh, are critical to um, allow for, you know, the jury and the judge to really look at this in a very broad way and uh, in the horrific way it is. So... Are you a part of that victim impact statement? Are you going to be? Um, I don't think so. The, I'm not sure why, but they didn't uh, actually um, ask me to come to the trial particularly. I think my nephew said I could and she, he would set it up. But since he didn't ask, I was sort of not in a hurry to go down there, to be honest with you. It's uh, been pretty difficult. So, um, I mean, I might go down. I hadn't really thought about it too much. Um, I'm not going to weigh in on the death penalty. I think it's very complicated. I mean, my rage and my inner anger is enormous. Um, I think it's far too complicated, and I'm far too close to the situation. Um, I think there has to be justice, and I think we'll let the courts uh, make that decision, and hopefully the courts will come up with a, uh, a proper uh, system within, our, within the justice system of the United States. So you said it's been pretty difficult. Um, what has what has the impact been on the, your family and yourself personally since the October twenty eighteen attack? It's kind of like getting punched in the gut a lot and often, I guess. Uh, you know, it's a lot of what uh, if we're not talking about it, it's the elephant in the room that we're you know it's just always been with us. And we're constantly reminded. It's a daily thing, pretty much, and missing her. She was uh, an incredible person, and uh, her um, her loss has been uh, horrific, and the whole family has been uh, 
terribly devastated by it. And uh, can I say it's a lot of grief. What does that look like when you said it's been they've been devastated? My kids, they were very close, of course, and my and her, of course her her sons, their their my kids' cousins, and um, uh, it's just often it's, it's a lot of fond memories and remembering all the great things she did and all the wonderful experiences we had with her and uh, how loving she was and how dear of a person she was, a very special person, and um, you know, and the way that it happened. Obviously, any any death of a loved one is very painful and tragic, but this was so horrific and so um, t- tragic that, uh, you know, it's just, it's the thing that's supposed to happen to other people, not not to you and your family. It's a, it's a, so it's like we're just a quiet, regular family and suddenly this thing has happened to us. It's. I want to ask you about the Canadian side, the Canadian history part. Um, were her kids born in Canada? No, they were born in America. They, they're, they're uh, all- they have double, uh, dual citizenship and... Um, of course, my nephew in France has triple citizenship, but um, yeah, but there's a very strong Canadian connection. I mean, uh, her husband, my late uh, brother-in-law Stephen Feinberg, was also Canadian. They were they met here. I mean, in, you know, in the community, and um, and then they moved. He was a, a student at Harvard, and they moved to uh, Boston just after they got married. So their whole life was American, really. But obviously, very close ties to Canada. They always would come back to visit, and, and you know, the kids are very much aware of their Canadian, um, Canadian roots, you know, let's say. Mm-hmm. But we were, when we were covering the story, I know my colleague Lila was, was writing about her times. Her picture still was still up at Holy Blossom and her, uh, confirmation pictures. Uh, as far as I remember, yeah. is it still there? Yeah, it's still there. And, uh, actually the Holy Blossom put up a tree in her memory and there was a, an event that uh, occurred, was it last year or the year before? I can't remember, but maybe it was before COVID. I can't remember, but they, but they had a tree planting outside the synagogue. And uh, uh, yeah, Joyce was, we were very connected with Holy Blossom in those days. Yeah. And has um, anything been done in terms of, I don't know if there's a grandchild or a, a, a somebody born with her name since those five years almost, or what? My daughter, Devorah, who lives in Cleveland, the one I was telling you about was very close, had a little baby girl. Um, Muscle tub. That was well. She's three years old now, but, but at the time, uh, they named her Joy, and uh, we call her Joy Joy. She's a wonderful little girl, and uh, she uh, sometimes sees my sister's picture, and I say that's that's Big Joy, and she says, and then she said to me, and I'm Little Joy, and one day she'll learn a little bit about her history of who her wonderful aunt was. The other kids that were old enough to remember are. Um, they were really devastated. Uh, they were very close to their aunt in Pittsburgh. And uh, and has there been any kind of scholarships or anything done that way? To, you said the tree at Holy Blossom, but was there anything else we should know about? Well, there's a, a memorial in the Bayat where I'm a member. Scholarship fund's not a bad idea. Thank you for that. <laughs> Maybe I'll look into that. And in terms of her growing up in Canada, um, a lot of it was made about how she was a very good friend at for kids at camp, where she was, uh, her two closest friends were from, I don't know how to pronounce the camp's name, Camp Kawagawa, Ka- help me. Uh, Kawagama. Kawagama. Yeah, she was a great Kawagamite, and I joined her there, and uh, she was my sort of role model when I was growing up and into my adult years still. I always thought of her as my role model. She was a, like a tzedekah. She was just an unusually wonderful and giving dear person. And uh, 
She then did uh, work uh, with emotionally disturbed children here at uh, in Ontario, and I followed her in that those footsteps as well, and worked at the same place. It was called uh, Browndale in those days, and um, I followed her there as a childcare worker. Like I say, she was my role model. <laughs> and at the time that this happened, where were you when you heard about this? I, I hate to bring you back to the day. I'll just do it once. But um, okay. when when you heard about it on the news, it was Shabbat. I imagine you were in shul. Yeah, I didn't hear about it on the news. Some uh, neighbor had heard about it to, uh, on the radio and um, came and told me. And I, Well, I didn't know my sister. I knew my sister was very involved in the synagogue there, and I knew she was... It went well. She went every day to shul, and she used to take these. Um, she called them her millionaires. She would take these older guys to shul every morning, and then she'd make breakfast for them after. And it was really, really something lovely. And um, she was, I knew she'd be there on Shabbat as well. So when they said that the synagogue had been attacked like this, I was sickened, and I thought, "Oh my gosh, she was probably there." And I remember, um, but I had no access to the news, and I went. Uh, I go to the bayit, so I went to speak to uh, Rabbi Karopkin. And he'd heard something from the um, the grapevine about the attack. He didn't also, of course, know if my sister was involved. And uh, we sort of looked at each other and uh, said, well, God willing, we'll be able to deal with this, whatever it is. And uh, he was a constant source of strength to us through the time. When this happened, America's had mass shootings a lot in the last five years, almost. Like a lot, almost every day. But this one was maybe... One of the first big ones. It seems like nothing now because they have them all the time. And because of anti-Semitism, it was maybe still the worst mass murder of Jews in U.S. history. What have you been able to process or to uh, understand what that did, what that signaled when it happened for what what we're experiencing now? It's a very complicated question, but I don't know if you understand where I'm going with this. Well, I think that it... um it kind of uncovered a uh, an underbelly of anti-Semitism. I think that uh, that this could have actually happened, you know, in the United States. Such a grotesque act, a blatant act of violent anti-Semitism. You know, I think over the years, you know, uh, we've not gotten used to, but we've seen, you know, graffiti and other stuff that's more subtle. But that this sort of opened up uh, or exposed anyway what maybe was already there and, and social media sort of aggravating some of the negative aspects of social media, aggravating um, uh, really a, a horrific underbelly of hate and craziness, you know. And now we're seeing more of it, uh, the, the amount of anti-Semitism uh, in our country as well as the United States uh, just we're the number one group of uh, uh, that's being attacked. It doesn't often appear that way in the news, but that's the stats show it. And it's been four and a half, five years. So now we have a verdict. Does the verdict give you any hope or anything positive about this at all? I, I always have to have hope, but but positive. I mean, the fact that the justice system has come through. Um, that they didn't monkey around with any kind of political niceties. They called it what it was. They didn't try to sugarcoat it. And, you know, the, the, I think the defense was trying to, trying to portray it as some kind of anti-immigration and make it some kind of, uh, that there was some kind of logic behind it, even if it's crazy logic, there was some logic. No, they said it's, it, it's an out-and-out anti-Semitic 
murder and slaughter, and that's what it was. And they didn't they didn't uh, try to uh, politicize it or, uh, or or make nice about it. They just said what it was. I think that's that's a very positive thing actually, and it sort of wakes up. I mean, after all, the people that are on side with uh, this kind of thinking aren't going to be affected one way or the other. I think um, in terms of changing their mind or, or opening up their hearts, uh, the real crazies. But there's a lot of people that are not that involved with this whole issue. And, uh, you know, when it's sort of said that way and reason, reasonably minded people who really don't have hate in their heart, we sort of wake up and say, you know, okay, this, this, is, a, this, is, this is good. We, they've said what it is. And we live in a society still, even though we're rocketed by by anti-Semitism and other, uh, targeting other minority groups that uh, are considered weak and fair game, uh, we, have, uh, we still live in a country that's democratic, has justice, and I think that's a good thing. I wondered about for Canada. I mean, everybody said, oh, it could never happen in Canada. We have a different, it's not the same as crazy with the guns in the United States. We don't have that many. I wondered if your views about that have changed at all or? I think we can't, uh, we can be grateful we live in Canada. We live in a great country still, but our synagogues are all protected uh, every day. There's the codes to get in and there's police uh, certainly on the Yom Tovim and uh, it's not what it was when we were growing up. I mean, uh, you know, it's not like that. Um, and uh, could it happen here? God forbid. But I think it could. We're not immune. God forbid. Is there anything you want our audience to understand about your your sister and, and what this has meant? Well, just like I said, she was just the most wonderful human being. She was my hero. She was a very gracious person. Regal, really. You know, she was so refined and so gentle and so so uh, tolerant of everybody. Uh, she just had this loving nature about her that uh, was very non-judgmental, kind of took you for who you were and accepted you, never judged you, and just had a lot of love in her heart. It's a terrible loss. After the verdict, now the courts must decide on the shooter's fate. Prosecutors want the death penalty. His defense team wants life in prison instead. And that's what Jewish Canada sounds like for this episode of the CJN Daily, sponsored by Metropia. Integrity, community, quality, and customer care. And we'll end with a bit of what it sounded like last week when the former Prime Minister of Israel, Naftali Bennett, appeared in Toronto to give a speech for the Friends of Simon Wiesenthal Center. Now, we aren't permitted to use any audio of Bennett's speech, but I can let you hear what it was like outside the event. It was held at a banquet hall called the Symes. There were dozens of very loud anti-Israel, pro-Palestinian protesters. And although there were tons of police and even police on horses and private security, the protesters were allowed to block the sidewalk, block the access road to the venue, even block the parking lot. And they got right up into the Jewish community members' faces as they had to cross the picket line to get inside the venue. Some people had water thrown on them. Others were called baby killers and murderers. And although Bennett called them thugs and the head of the Friends of Simon Wiesenthal Center, Michael Levitt, vowed that the disturbing protest 
won't silence the Jewish community, you could sure hear them inside for most of the event. Levitt also commended the owners of the venue for not backing down from hosting it, despite what he said had been a concerted pressure campaign by pro-Palestinian groups who flooded the owners with emails and put bad reviews on their social media sites. Thanks for listening.